Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane. We're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today, we're going to look at the Gospel according to St. John, chapter 20, verses 19 to 23. And... um, We've seen this verse before. It's used for in a number and a number of occasions within the liturgical year of the church. Um, but it's also one of the options for the uh, for the gospel reading for Pentecost Sunday within the church's um, uh, liturgical structure. So, and the reason that it appears with some degree of frequency in in the liturgy and is something that should draw our attention to it. Um, over and over again as a piece of scripture, that a passage of scripture that each of us know pretty well. Because it does a few things. And before we begin to look at the text itself, um, it, it, what it does, it tells us why Jesus came to earth. It tells us <clears throat> um, what his mission really was. It tells us what our relationship with him is and what that should mean in the midst of the world. So that's a pretty important passage, and it's, pretty, it's something that, that very much kind of ties us together and makes a, a, a unitive whole out of this whole understanding of church, of mission, of incarnation, and of all those things. You know, Jesus, um, Jesus was, we, we've, we've looked at this before, from the beginning of creation, um, God himself wanted to participate in what he had made in order for us to be lifted up and for to, uh, order for us to be united with him. And so the incarnation was something that was in the original plan of creation. And so it isn't kind of God didn't change his mind when humanity sinned and said, oh, no, I have to send my son to go down there and atone for this. The plan was already there. The idea was already there, whatever we want to call it, the intention to join the son to the flesh of the world in order to sanctify it and to raise it up and draw it closer and closer into the mystery of the divine presence. Um, But humanity... Um, it did have some role to play, and the role that humanity had to play was historical. That through their own sinfulness, they created a different kind of necessity on their part for the coming of the incarnate Christ. It didn't change who Christ was, or it didn't change why, why Christ came. It changed the milieu in which Christ was to come. And so by creating, by taking the original creation and by recreating it to some degree in our own image and likeness through our own sinfulness, then Christ's mission became different for us. And uh, once again, it isn't that humanity enhanced God, it's that God was received into humanity and enhanced humanity. Everything that is in addition to, everything that is more than, than the pure being of the divine, <clears throat> is, as a matter of fact, on our part, that Jesus comes and enters into our humanity. We don't enter into his um, divinity through the created order, through the uh, 
um, through his, his work, through his incarnation, but he into us. The end result, of course, is, is that we do end up in God, but we end up in God through the divinity of the Son and through the divinization of our own interior souls. And that, um, in other words, that in order, and, and, and many, many of, the, of the spiritual writers and many in the Eastern Church are not afraid to say this. We kind of hesitate to say this because uh, it sound, doesn't sound right to us all the time. But um, just a, a couple days ago in the breviary, um, one of the authors said very clearly, you will become gods. In other words, we are transformed by the presence of the incarnation within us into who that incarnate Christ truly is, who is the Son of God. And that is our redemption, and that is our salvation, and that is our eternal life. It's a process, and Jesus talks about that process today in the gospel that we have. He has, <clears throat> and so the gospel goes, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. There's all sorts of things that are going on here, actually. And um, that even in that one sentence, we have any number of important things that we should look at. First of all, John wants to make very clear <clears throat> that the resurrected Jesus is real. That he's not, as, as he says in Luke's gospel, he is not a ghost. He is not pure spirit. And yet, at the same time, <clears throat> there is something different about him since the resurrection. Since he can come into the room even though the doors were locked. And uh, John also tells us the doors were locked because the disciples were afraid of the Jews. There was a great deal of consternation. We know, for instance, that Jewish officials... <clears throat> bribed the guards at the tomb to say that the body was stolen. It was, a, it was a deadly threat to their position, their power, everything that was normative in, in that uh, political Jewish state it, that existed um, within the confines of the Roman Empire. And so any kind of disturbance, we know in the first place, this is why Jesus was led to crucifixion. He was, it was afraid that he was leading some kind of insurrection. He was going to cause some kind of upheaval. He was going to cause some kind of civil disturbance. Um, the, the, the hypocrisy of the whole thing is, of course, is they let um, Barabbas go, who is, in fact, a murderer and an insurrectionist. But <clears throat> Jesus seemed to them to be more powerful, have greater influence, and become therefore the greater danger. So that they had a just fear of the Jews. If they were going to go around saying that Jesus had risen from the dead, what, were, what was the political Jewish community going to do to preserve its integrity, its power, its place within the empire? It was going to try and silence them, that's for sure. How that was going to happen we don't know, but we do know subsequently that they were imprisoned at least, and that uh, that ultimately, ultimately, um, they were all martyred, except for John, um, <clears throat> and that was a combination of both Rome and uh, and the Sanhedrin. And so when he appears to them, then even though the doors were locked, so there's something he's 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 there, um, and he's he's real. But he's not what he was before because he came into a locked room um, without opening the doors. And then he stood among them and he said, Peace be with you. 
This is the typical Jewish greeting, actually, shalom. <clears throat> and it means more than just peace, the way that we think of it, as the absence of violence. It means peace also, as far as kind of an inner harmony goes, as far as a well-being goes, as far as the order of your life goes. Um, it means, it means um, very clearly something more holistic, something more complete than just peace itself. And, uh, you know, when we give the sign of peace at Mass, um, it's really kind of a truncated version of shalom, because our word does not contain all those other possibilities. We have kind of a definitive um, sense that peace is the absence of violence and uh, of any kind, whether it's emotional, whether it's uh, um, physical, whatever it is, that um, it's, it's, simply, it's simply the absence of violence. And, and well, that, that's legitimate at the same time. Um, it, it isn't exactly the meaning of the Jewish word shalom. John, once again, of course, in, in, verse, in chapter of 14, verse 27, he says the same thing. He appears, he, he, is, he comes to the apostles and says, peace be with you. And so he wishes them then calmness and peace and trust and hope and confidence and all of that. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The material Jesus is present. The material Jesus is present. And, <clears throat> and we're going to find out, for instance, through these appearances in the absence of St. Thomas, that, uh, <clears throat> that this, is, this is the proof positive of the resurrection. The physicality of Jesus' presence is proof positive of the resurrection. And so he wants that John wants us to know that none of this is hallucination. That none of this is uh, is simply imagination or, you know, caused by desire. None of it is that. It's real. Jesus is real. He is there, and you can see his hands and his side. You can see the wounds that he carries. And uh, and then when the disciple, then the gospel says, when the disciples saw him. They were glad. And uh, in other words, this was reassuring to them. They had all heard of the resurrection. They had, in fact, um, there were, in fact, sightings and conversations and all that kind of stuff. But somehow or other, it, is, it was such an incredible event that once the immediacy of these things were passed, you know, you began to self-doubt. You began to wonder. Here, very clearly then, they are... They are glad, they rejoice, because they have seen him in the flesh. Not necessarily exactly like he was before, but sufficiently so that he retains, um, he's recognizable, and his wounds are still able to be seen in his body. And so Jesus said to them again, once this encounter had taken place, once this whole renewal in the, in the belief that, that Jesus rose from the dead, that it was, in fact, a physical phenomenon and not just a spiritual rising up, um, that, this is, that here he is. He's not in the tomb. He's here, standing in front of them, talking to them. So they are, they are, naturally they are glad. Naturally this is a reaffirming thing. Naturally this is something that, that deepens their, their willingness to be convicted of the resurrection as an actual event that took place. 
And it's also for the readers of John's Gospel to reaffirm to us that while we can listen to all the kinds of speculation about, well, you know, Jesus didn't really physically rise from the dead, it was simply his spirit was there and, and all of this kind of thing, none of that, none of that is scriptural. And none of that um, co- corresponds with the witness of the apostles, nor does it correspond with the Gospels. And it seems to me, if it's going to be a Christian position, it's going to have to correspond to the Gospels, it's going to have to correspond to eyewitnesses, it's going to have to correspond to those who handed on the faith to us from the very beginning. And if we do not do that, then we reject the whole idea of the apostolic witness. It's not, it's, not that, it's not that our understanding of things can't develop. It can. Um, and Christianity had became very aware of that, I think, even in, in the 5th century. And I've mentioned this before as well. Vincent of Lorraine the, uh, wrote a treatise, a short treatise, on the development of doctrine, saying, yeah, we can, we can develop our understanding of it, but we cannot change the foundations of it. And so our articulation might become different, our visualness, our visualization of it might become different. But <clears throat> to develop the idea, the doctrine of the, re- of the resurrection is anchored in the empty tomb, the physical resurrection of Jesus and the fact that he appears fl- in the flesh to his disciples and declares to them in Luke's gospel, I am not a ghost. And uh, so here he is. This is in John's testimony now. This is the reaffirmation of the resurrection of the Lord. And so the Lord comes and he says to them again, peace be with you. So he's preparing them now. They're saying, be calm, be settled, be confident, all of those kinds of things. And then he says something quite incredible. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Now stop for a moment and realize what Jesus is saying. The Father sent him on a particular mission. Um, He came into the world because he was always going to come into the world, but the mission changed because of what humanity itself had had done to the world that had been created. And so Jesus' mission, not his person, not his divinity, but his mission changes in relationship to the human situation, the human condition. And in so doing, then, he says that my mission that the Father sent me on, I am now sending to you. Whatever reason Jesus came to earth at the time that he did, in the milieu that he came into the world in, in the situation of humanity that he came into the world in, that, that whatever, however that becomes the identity of the mission, Jesus then hands over to the disciples. Now think of that. I mean, his divine mission is now invested in the Twelve. And that he himself, and this is, this is going to come in just, a few, in just a few lines, he himself, as he says in Matthew's Gospel, is going to be with them to the end of the world, to the consummation of the world. But the actual mission the preaching and the day-to-day work of the mission is now invested to humanity and especially to the apostles. And in forming the apostolic college, the apostolic college in the sense of a group, a collegiate uh, entity, um, in, in investing it in them, he invests it also in those who come after them. And um, and this is... Uh, this is actually part of the distinction and part of the discussion 
um, between Protestantism and Catholicism. Um, for a long time, the Protestant exegetes uh, would say that the line in Matthew, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, and whatever you bind on earth shall be heaven, and will be bound in heaven, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound on earth. Oftentimes, the Protestant exegetes would say, well, that's an addition, that's a Roman addition to the, to the Gospel of St. Matthew, and uh, that we don't have to take it seriously. Then, um, especially with the New Testament scholar Oscar Kuhlmann, um, they came to the realization, no, this is an authentic piece of the text. And, uh, but what they did with that um, authentic piece of the text is that they attributed that only to Peter himself. They did not in, in any way look upon it as, as kind of an inherited gift to humanity. And yet at the same time, Jesus says in that very same passion, passage, um, <clears throat> um, I, that, uh, that we are a church. And he said, and it's the only time in the New Testament outside of the letters of St. Paul that we talk about a church. Um, and so when, uh, and so in this then, the, the, the Roman Catholic Church legitimately says if he invested this on, in, to, in Peter for the church, which is what he says, and, uh, and when he does that then, it isn't just for a period of about 30 years. It seems to be intended for a period that hooks up with Matthew's gospel again when he says, Behold, I am with you all days, even to the consummation of the world. So the investiture of the keys with Peter in Matthew um, is something that is an enabling understanding for what we hear here. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Is Jesus sending, is the, Jesus sending only the apostles for the duration of their lives? Or is he sending them into the world to finish the work that he had begun, that if he had stayed, and, and this is part of the ascension, if he had stayed with them, they would never have taken on this task because they would have totally always relied on him. And that uh, they would have never really come into their own as the ones who assumed responsibility for and the ones who were challenged to enter more deeply into the mystery of the incarnation of God with us and of the mission of the church. So this then is a powerful, powerful phrase. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Well then, what is his mission then becomes the logical question in this. What was he supposed to do when he came to earth? We've already seen he was going to, he was going to come to earth anyway because that was part of the original plan of creation. And uh, in anticipation of the reason he came is the foundation <clears throat> of the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. That it is the incarnation of the Lord, the redeeming incarnation of the Lord, which um, had in, in time uh, had freed Mary from original sin. So it's, it's really critical that we get this because... Certainly, it redefines the role of the, of the Pope and bishops within the Church. It gives us a structure that is divinely mandated because it is these people who then are entrusted with the integrity of the magisterium. They, like Jesus, have to entrust that to many others. They have to entrust it to the 
to the priests, to the religious, to the catechists, and so forth. But it comes to us through them, and they receive it from Christ through the apostles. So then, and then when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this is how it's going to be carried out, whatever this mission is, and we're going to see this in a, in a line or two. But this is how it's going to be carried out. The Spirit, which he talks about frequently in the Gospels as the paraclete, as the advocate, and so forth, the Spirit is, while a person of the Blessed Trinity is so united to the Father and the Son that where he is, they are as well. It's just like where Jesus is. The Father is present, and Jesus says that if you know me, you've known the Father. And then he said, and, and the Father will send my spirit, the advocate, the paraclete. And so <clears throat> we, can't, we, we can't pull this kind of, of um, joachimist uh, or pseudo-joachimist idea of the total separation of the missions of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Um, because then we really do kind of end up with three gods instead of one God and three persons. So where the Spirit comes, then the Lord Jesus comes also, and the Father is with them. And Jesus says also in John's Gospel, we will come and dwell within them. So the Spirit <clears throat> is the manifestation of the third person of the Blessed Trinity um, into the work of the Church and into the mission of the Apostles. It is, in fact, this, in fact, is John's simple story of Pentecost. He breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. So while in, in uh, the Acts of the Apostles that comes in tongues of flames, um, that in John's Gospel it comes in this post-resurrection appearance of Jesus to the disciples in the locked room. So they have now received, they will receive the Spirit of the Lord. And the Spirit of the Lord is that which is going to teach, guide, and enable them to carry out the mission that Jesus has just given them. They couldn't possibly, in the course of their three years public ministry of Jesus, they couldn't possibly have absorbed the entirety of the mystery of faith. Um, that it was kind of, for them, an introductory course, and they were brought to the point then where they were to kind of go on on their own, <clears throat> but they are not alone because the Holy Spirit is with them, which means the Father and the Son remains with them as an interior instructor. So the guarantor of truthfulness, the guide, the one who is going to lead them along the way. And then he says, now comes what is the mission? If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withhold. This then becomes the mission that we're dealing with. We're dealing <clears throat> then with the forgiveness of sin. Now, we see this certainly as the origin of the sacrament of confession, penance, reconciliation, uh, whatever we call it at the present time. Um, but it's the same thing. It's the sacramental forgiveness of sin. Um, an incredibly important element, but, but it has a much greater, a much broader kind of um, sense to it. <clears throat> and in that broader sense to it, it, um, it is encompassing 
of many things. First of all, we have to go back and look at the meaning, the the, the meaning of what uh, of what sin is in the scriptures themselves. It is not just the act committed; it is the consequences that act that that act brings upon humanity. We see that best in the Garden of Eden. There, there were Adam and Eve living a kind of an idyllic life. Um, Eve, uh, Eve disobeys the Lord, strives to be like him, what tries to take his place. Adam shares that with her. And then, <clears throat> then the troubles of humanity begin. And uh, that, you know, the woman gives birth in pain, the man earns his living by the sweat of his brow, and so forth. The consequences of sin have burdened humanity and taken away from humanity that pristine innocence and that pristine kind of joy that, that they had. And, um, and in so doing that, <clears throat> they... Uh, they then have burdened themselves and those and after that sin then comes you know Cain murders his brother Abel and the the sadness and the tragedy of sin continues then to afflict the human race and so then we can also get into this issue well you know that's not quite fair because Adam and Eve sinned then why do I have to suffer from what they sinned for and it looks like every generation God imposes original sin on the human soul that's not the truth at all that humanity is sufficiently enabled to be free. And in that freedom, they are able to reconstruct to a certain degree the world in which they live. And through sin, they changed who they were to a certain degree. Not totally, not completely, but they changed it sufficiently that it brought pain and suffering into the world. Bringing pain and suffering into the world changes who they are as, as men and women. And in so doing, they pass that on from generation to generation. It's part, it's part of the gener generative uh, capacity of the human person. You reproduce who you are. You don't reproduce some kind of angel. And so original sin then becomes the affliction of all humanity. And it is passed on from generation to generation, from <clears throat> beginning with those who created that difference in human nature in the very beginning. So that the forgiveness of sin is not um, just the confessional, which is certainly a part of this. He's investing that power to the apostles, and therefore to the successors of the apostles and those to whom they delegate that. But <clears throat> they also, therefore, are to lift the burdens of the consequences of sin from the backs of humanity and the world. This is exactly what Jesus did, isn't it? That if the consequences of sin are the distortion of paradise, uh, which it is, then it lies at the root, not individual sin, but the sin of humanity, lies at the root of physical disabilities, of, of all sorts of, of wars and famines and all of that kind of thing. It has disrupted the goodness of the order of creation. It has done that. And in so doing that, <clears throat> what happens then is that... Uh, the forgiveness of sin not only takes the personal sin away from our lives, but we are also obliged to undo the physical burdens and the mental and the psychological burdens of sin as they affect the world in which we live. And that is how, in fact, the Church is to justify and to understand its active part in the world. It is interesting that, you know, the Church was the first 
institution in the Western world to educate women. The church was the first institution in the Western world to establish hospitals and care for the sick and the dying. The church was the original originator of uh, works of mercy of, of, uh, and the corporal works of mercy and the spiritual works of mercy. Of, uh, it was, it was uh, the reformers of the 14th century who insisted that uh, those who were condemned to die for heinous crimes should have the possibility of the sacrament of confession before they, uh, before they were to be executed. Um, it became so real and so much embedded in the, uh, in the understanding of the faith that even sinners used it to their advantage. For instance, the ultimate revenge of the mafioso was to kill someone in the midst of a, while they were in the midst of committing a mortal sin to limit the chances of any possibility of them going to heaven. And it was their way and their mythology of, of, of good and evil to, to condemn people to hell. So <clears throat> we understand then that uh, that the darkness which overshadows humanity, that that darkness is the fruit of our own sinfulness, and the church's obligation is to is to lift that burden. Un- unfortunately, sometimes um, the lifting of that burden takes on sociological and political enti- uh, realities that, in many ways. Um, ignore altogether what we're really supposed to be doing, and instead of healing humanity, they're putting band-aids on mortal wounds. Um, <clears throat> we, we find this of we find this of the of the radical social justice warriors who don't bother about anything else about the faith except to do good, and uh, oftentimes their doing good is is very distorted because it isn't anchored in Jesus Christ; it's anchored in themselves, and they themselves are sinful people. Um, it's like the uh, you know the the United Nations um, and their their population control business that they impose upon especially upon uh, the southern hemisphere, um, <clears throat> thinking you know well isn't this great we're going to help them we're going to help them be like middle class uh, Westerners um, over sixty percent of whom are on psychotherapy which doesn't seem to be um, you know necessarily uh, the the idyllic uh, way of life. And um, and yet, at the same time, they therefore are helping um, women to take the lives of their children and, and so forth. So, yeah. So it is the guidance, then, and the Holy Spirit is to guide us in our good works. The, it is to guide us in what we do. <clears throat> and it is to guide us in order that the good works that we do, the social justice concerns we work for are rooted not in our own altruism but are rooted in the person of Jesus Christ for it is his mission to lift from the humanity the backs of humanity the sinfulness that they have carried with us from the very beginning from the original sin of Adam and Eve in this passage then and in this most remarkable passage um, what we find is the summing up actually of the resurrection the summing up of the role of the apostles, the summing up of the coming of the Holy Spirit and the purpose of the coming of the Holy Spirit, the summing up of the mission, and the summing up of what that mission is to be. For the forgiveness of sin is a vast array. It means to help humanity to regain its primordial innocence. We do that sacramentally, but we also do it through good works. 
And while it sacramentally it affects the life of the individual, through the good works it affects the life of society, of the larger community. The mission of the Church, therefore, is to save the world. And the mission of the Church is not only just to save the world, but to bring the world back into harmony with its original intention, in harmony with its Creator, in harmony with its Redeemer, in harmony with the good spirit that exists within it to draw us ever closer to the living God. This Pentecost passage in John's Gospel is foundational to our understanding of the faith. Without this clarity in so few lines, we really kind of wander wondering, get caught up in all of the politics, get caught up in the sociological argumentations, get caught up in all those kinds of things, when in fact there's a very fundamental and basic reality underneath it. Jesus has risen from the dead, has handed on the mission the Father gave him to his disciples. He has given them the Holy Spirit to enable them to fulfill that mission, and then he has explained to them what that mission is. And then <clears throat> what we what we see is that Jesus continues then to appear to the disciples in different ways and places, and then, according to Luke's gospel, he ascends into heaven, and the life of the church begins. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com.